Hello, and welcome to Vintage Lesbians, a personal journey of friendship and queer history where we try to set the record a little less straight. My name is Allison, and I'm one of your co-hosts. I'm Shan, your other co-host. I Okay, I have to point this out because this is an audio medium, but Allison and I have, like, we write up our little spiel so that we don't forget words. I know it's two sentences. Don't at me. But Allison has hers written down with a little winky face at the end, and what she did this time was she said, a little less straight, and then in that pause, she did a big exaggerated wink at the microphone, and I hope you all (laughs) felt it, because I did, and I felt very happy. (laughs) I was going to uh, edit out that pause. You can't, no. Okay, yes. Should I, like, put in, like, a little sound effect? Like a ting? No. Okay, that sounds hard. Does sound hard. Anyway, right now. Maybe you could just make the sound. Anyway, sorry, I stomped on the trigger warnings. I don't think there are any trigger warnings. Oh, that's nice. We talk about civil rights, so there might be some racism, but to my knowledge, there isn't any. But if there are any, I will talk about it right here. Thanks, Past Allison. Today, we are recording Vintage Lesbians After Dark, which is exactly the same as Vintage Lesbians regular, but we're recording it at night. Yeah, it's nighttime. The Mm -hmm. sun has gone down. We've got tea. After dark. The cat's been fed. Groceries are on their way. Once again, living our best lives. Hell yeah, adults. Yeah. How are you doing? Um, I'm good. I, I mean, we talked yesterday because we recorded yesterday, and we only talk when we're recording, so. Yes, of course. This is like, it's weird to talk to you so soon. I know, I feel like I don't have any more stories. I went to work today, and that was nice. Yeah. You know, baby's real cute. Mm-hmm. I also went to work today, and that was nice, and I met a baby, and he's <gasps> real cute. Oh my gosh. Amazing. <laughs> we're, we're killing it. Huge shout-outs to our very first patron, who we're not going to name because they didn't donate at the level that gets you named on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but we love you. Oh, God, I'm regardless. I'm not. I'm just- You know who um, you are. You know who you are, and we love you very much. We'll be and, contacting uh, you privately to say yeah, look for look for your, your special greeting, and um, enjoy the private Q&A we're going to send you. Yeah. Uh, we actually have an idea for a yeah. donors-only episode. Actually, I think we might be starting a donors-only podcast because we have a something just fell in the kitchen. Everything's fine. Haunted. A I think we're going to start a donors-only podcast, and it might just be once a month. Mm-hmm. But we have a lot of really fun ideas of stuff we can do that's like vaguely related to vintage lesbians. Mm-hmm. Um, for so, example, should I should I tell them? Um, I feel like. You know what? No. Let's record it first. Let's record it and then we can tease it. And then if they want access, consider this give us money. Consider this your tease. This is your this is your shakedown. (laughs) Anyway, would you like to learn a little bit more about our friend James Baldwin? I would really, really love to. All right. So previously on Vintage Lesbians, we learned about the early life of our friend James Baldwin. The early life up until his like thirties. Yeah. He He's fascinating. Was born. He did writing. He was good at things, namely writing. Moved to France. You already told me that he died, though, so, like, spoiler alert for yes. this episode. Mm-hmm. That is going to happen in this episode. Upsetting. When we left it, he was right about to move back to America for a few years to start his fight for civil rights. Moving back to America feels like a mistake. I mm-hmm. should know. I made that mistake. No, I feel like We it get the right it. You're Canadian. I am Canadian. <laughs> Ooh, you have options. You can leave this hellscape whenever you want. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> Um, I feel like don't be mad at me just because my parents decided to, well, they didn't have me in a country with healthcare. I was actually born in the States, but my dad's Canadian, so I was always going to get that perk. Anyway, fighting for civil rights, always a good call. This was in 1957, so he was right at the forefront of the movement. Um, This was about the time the civil rights movement started making um, news uh, internationally, so he would read about it. 
So this would have been right around the time that Audre Lorde was going to school and being the only black girl in an all-white school. Yes, it was. She mm-hmm. may have even read some of his things. Who knows? Yeah, maybe. Probably uh, not in that school. If, if we could only go back in time, call up Aretha Franklin and her time travel machine. Call back. Don't know what we're talking about? Listen to all of our episodes. <laughs> yeah, there's a secret storyline. No, there's not. There's not. Don't. Mm-mm. No. <laughs> No, we're just two goofballs who like history and queer people and want to do this thing. Yes. Um, that was a bad description of us. No, that was perfect. We're just two queer idiots. <laughs> <laughs> Accurate. Yes. No, we're just we're just friends who wanted to learn more about our own personal history, uh, being queer people and not knowing too much about it. And it turned into like a thing. And I really enjoy it and I'm learning a lot. Me too. And it's made us closer as friends. It has made us closer as friends. And it's like, we've done so many things together. Mm -hmm. And like, also, we've helped people. It's become a thing. And I like it. Thank you, listeners. And for those reasons, you should give us money. Yes. Patreon.com slash Vintage Les Pod L-E-S-P-O-D. 1957 is when he returned to the United States of America. (laughs) There, a magazine editor he knew uh, suggested that he start reporting on what's happening in the American South. Um, I didn't write down where the magazine editor was, but my memory is saying Boston? All right. I don't know. I believe you. Google it. I'm not going to fact check this. Baldwin was understandably nervous about the trip, but he still made it for the story. Mm -hmm. Um, He interviewed people in Charlotte. Yeah. Jeez. Hey, black man, you should go to the South in the middle of the civil rights movement. I think it's possible that the editor was also black, but once again, did not write it down. Still? Not the safest choice. No, no. But it turned out to be extremely influential. Not shocking. He interviewed people in Charlotte, which is where he met Martin Luther King Jr. Heard of him? I have heard of this man, yes. <laughs> I believe I have missed a day of school every year for this man. Yes. And other better reasons, but also thanks for that one day. Yeah. But, like, mostly the other reasons, you know? And he also went to Montgomery, Alabama. Um, I've also heard of Montgomery, Alabama. As have I. You ask me if I've heard of things a lot, so I just sometimes want to catch you. <laughs> just for, like, the really <laughs> famous ones. <laughs> I'm feeling a little goofy. I'm sorry. I will <laughs> try to tone it down. <laughs> Vintage Lesbians After Dark. Don't turn it down. Let your goofiness fly. <laughs> this is going to be fun to edit. <laughs> pew, pew, pew. I just want to give you a challenge. He began publishing essays about what he learned, and they were very well received. A few years later, in 1963, um, he was working heavily with the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE, and he conducted a lecture tour of the South for CORE. During this tour, he lectured students, white liberals, and anyone else listening about his racial ideology. You know how in school we always learned, like, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X were the full spectrum, and Malcolm X is the bad guy? Uh, yeah. Because white people were teaching us. I wish that we could do an episode on Malcolm X, but I don't know if that guy was queer at all. Uh, we'll do some Googling. <laughs> we'll do some Googling, because I... That, okay, Malcolm X and... This is a total aside, but Malcolm X and the Black Panther Party did so much good for mm-hmm. black communities, because they started as a black community organization, like a welfare organization. They gave new moms formula and diapers and child... Like, they had libraries and tutors, and, and they were making... The world better but because they were making black people more prosperous malcolm x got assassinated yes. that's the official vintage lesbian stance it is and if you want us to do donor episodes about straight people let us know oh yeah we could totally do that <laughs> <laughs> 
people who are uncomfortable with Malcolm X because of like the more aggressive stance, like mm-hmm. James Baldwin, because he was yeah, softer than more that. More palatable. But people who were disgruntled by just pure nonviolence, like James Baldwin, because he had a little more action than that. A little more backbone. Mm-hmm. He also expressed the hope that socialism would take root in the United States. Hell yeah, James. By spring of 1963, the mainstream press, or the white press, began to recognize Baldwin's incisive analysis of white racism and his eloquent descriptions of black people's pain and frustration. Time featured Baldwin on the cover of their May 17th, 63 issue, and they said, There is not another writer who expresses with such poignancy and abrasiveness the dark realities of the racial ferment in the North and South. I was Googling the cover of uh, the cover that you referenced. Time, May 17th, 1963. I'll do a Google. Oh, I, well, no, I, f- I found it. It's, um, boy, there's a lot of symbolism on that cover. And there's also a banner in the uh, upper left that says, not the N-word, but, you know, the less bad N-word that I'm still not going to say as a white person. Mm-hmm. The N-E. I'll say the black person's push for equality. And there is a... Like white, mostly white background with some stabby black spikes on the left, like encroaching on it. I don't like this cover. We will perhaps we'll post, post it because it's, I didn't even know that time put black people on the cover. <sighs> That's a good eye. I did not really catch that symbolism. It's a little. It is a little. I don't like it. If they had done like a nice fade, I feel like that would have mm-hmm. been okay. I don't know. I'm not a graphic designer. Maybe, like, put him in the center. Make him smiling, Mm -hmm. as he's often smiling, instead of looking like a stern black man. He does have friendly eyes. He does. You know I think he's adorable. He's very handsome. I want (laughs) to put him in my pocket. Is that weird? No. It's fine. Is it weird? It's fine. Anyway. Baldwin's essays never stopped articulating the anger and frustration felt by real-life black Americans with more clarity and style than any other writer of his generation, regardless of race. Um, and I say real-life black Americans, by which I mean actual real people mm-hmm. and not the people that white America just sort of drew up in their minds because they never met an actual black person before. So not just the mammies on TV? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He was such a good writer, and his books were consumed by white people, which was a big deal that in the very, very yeah. racist times. We're still in racist times, but... Yeah, there, uh, I'm reading... Um, I'm, I'm in a book club with my girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Every adults. time you share a little bit more, you just get more and more domestic. It's great. I love it. <laughs> Tell me about your book club with your we're girlfriend. Reading, we're reading a book. A very, very good fantasy series written by a black woman, and I had literally never heard of it. I what, what book? It's called is... fifth, the Fifth Season. Oh, I think I've never. Heard I of don't that. remember um, words. Good. Ah, the Broken Earth series. Yeah, that's what it said when I googled it. But yeah, like she's won several awards, but I've never seen her stuff. Like it's never been recommended to me based on my love of Harry Potter, or Lord of the Rings, or <laughs> any other fantasies written by white people. And that annoys me because these books are very, very good. Better, I'd say, than any of the other books I just listed, at least in a story and world building aspect. Not to diminish J.R.L. Tolkien's world, but The Hobbit was a much better book than Lord of the Rings. Anyway, let's get (laughs) back to queer stuff. One of the reviewers of the time, David Levi, uh, was editor or contributor of the Massachusetts Review. And he wrote about how Baldwin's writings were received by the mainstream white society at that time. He said, This voice calls us to our immediate duty for the sake of our own humanity as well as our own safety. It demands that we stop regarding black people as an abstraction, an invisible man, and that we begin to recognize each black person in his full weight and complexity as a human being. That we face the horrible reality of our past and present treatment of black people, 
a reality we do not know and do not want to know. Obviously, he's speaking more like of the white liberals at the time. Yeah, like, hey, just because you don't think you're racist doesn't mean you don't mm -hmm. contribute to racist societal problems, doesn't mean you're not benefiting from white privilege, doesn't mean you're not contributing to white supremacy. There are things that we do every day as white people that can help or harm. You have to look at it with a critical eye, not an emotional one. Whether you mean to be racist or not isn't doesn't have any fucking thing to do with it. Because of his great way with words, Baldwin became sort of a spokesperson for civil rights. He was seen as like the ambassador between black people and white people, mm -hmm. which he did not enjoy. I can imagine. That's a huge amount of pressure to put on yeah. one person. He frequently appeared on television and delivered speeches on college campuses. He grew increasingly disillusioned as the American public, quote, disarmed him with celebrity, fell in love with his eccentricities, and institutionalized his outrage into primetime entertainment. So would you say they stopped treating him as a person? Yeah, that sounds about right. The very thing he was asking people mm -hmm. to stop doing? Yeah. Yeah. He also said, a spokesman assumes that he is speaking for others. I never assumed that I could. What I tried to do, or to interpret and make clear, was that no society can smash the social contract and be exempt from the consequences, and that the consequences are chaos for everybody in society. In Ebony Magazine, Alan Morrison wrote that Baldwin evinced... I've never heard this word before. Huh. Revealed. I'm going to say revealed when I read that right now. Convinced. What an old good word. Mm -hmm. Use it in an email today. Illusionist. <laughs> <laughs> in Ebony Magazine, Alan Morrison observed that Baldwin revealed an awareness, quote, that the audience for most of his non-fictional writings is white, and he uses every forum at his disposal to drive home the basic truths of black-white relations in America as he sees them. His function here is to interpret whites themselves and at the same time voice the black people's protest against his role in a Jim Crow society. That's a Ooh. lot of pressure. Yeah. Um, but he did a really good job. At one point, he got to know Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy. H have you heard of him? Have you heard of him? Uh, of, of the famed Kennedys? Yes, one of those. <laughs> yes, I've heard of Robert. He sent a uh, cable to Robert F. Kennedy during the Birmingham, Alabama crisis. Um, and he blamed the violence in Birmingham on the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, the Mississippi Senator James Eastland, and President Kennedy for failing to use the great prestige of his office as a moral forum, which it can be. Kennedy, uh, Robert Kennedy rather, was moved by this and he invited Baldwin to meet with him over breakfast. Baldwin was invited to Kennedy's Manhattan apartment. Kennedy met with him and Kenneth B. Clark, a psychologist who played a key role in Brown versus Board of Education, as well as the actor Harry Belafonte the singer Lena Horne, and the writer Lorraine Hansberry, and other activists from civil rights organizations. Most of the attendees left this meeting feeling devastated, um, but it was still an important one in voicing the concerns of the civil rights movement, and it provided exposure of civil rights as not just a political issue, but also a moral one. But also, Robert Kennedy could have done a lot more. He could have. I feel like devastation is the appropriate response to first, like, finding out how bad things are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when you're first exposed to things, you get to be sad for a bit. Mm -hmm. But then you have to stop and do something. Yes, you have to do something. Shannon's looking at me very intently as if to say, what are you doing, Allison? Hey, speaking of the FBI. <gasps> James Baldwin's FBI file contains 1,884 pages of documents Damn. collected from the 60s until the early 70s. They were really worried about him, huh? They did a lot of illegal surveillance of American writers. Uh, for example, for Richard Wright, <sighs> yes, they, they accumulated <clears throat> 276. And for Truman Capote, they accumulated 110. 
But James Baldwin, 1884. Yep. Almost 2,000 documents Mm -hmm. on the black man trying to make people... Big worried about him. Less racist. It's amazing that he died of natural causes. Yeah, I am... Ugh, good lord. Baldwin rejected the label civil rights activist, or that he uh, participated in a civil rights movement. He said that if someone is a citizen, one should not have to fight for civil rights. You're not wrong, Mm -hmm. sir, but you did, in fact, fight for them. Yes. And you were an activist. I'm going to still call him that. So. He refuted the idea that the civil rights movement was an outright revolution and said, instead, uh, calling it a very peculiar revolution because it has to have its aims of the establishment of a union and a radical shift in the American mores, the American way of life, as it applies to everyone in the country. I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah. I don't know. It felt like maybe towards the end he was getting feel like embracing he was getting, his like getting a little disillusioned mm-hmm. about the whole thing and like, well, nothing's going to change if everything doesn't change. And mm-hmm. that's, that's, I mean, partly true. And I can see why that would be his view. But small things can have huge repercussions in the future. Mm-hmm. It seems like he wasn't giving himself Enough the credit, credit he yeah. needed. As we know, he grew up in a very stern household, so I'm guessing he probably was taught to not give himself credit for a long time. And to push down his own emotions in favor of others? Hmm. Unrelatable. I don't know what that's like. James Baldwin eventually moved back to France after his friends Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. were assassinated. Yeah, uh, good call, buddy. As we know, I'm great at pronouncing French words. Yes. Yes. And I'm I actually- excited about this. I had a friend over, Joanne. Hey, Joanne. What's up? Hey, Joanne. And uh, Joanne speaks French. And I had her coach me on how to say this. So are you ready? Uh, he ended up living in saint paul du vent Yeah, nailed it. Sorry, just like every time you try to say a French word, you put on this like sing-song voice. <laughs> That's how French people speak. Yes. <laughs> your version of a French accent. I love it so much. <laughs> so we retired to a very cute little cottage in saint paul de vols where he wrote, <laughs> uh, he wrote the book If Beale Street Could Talk, which I was heard made of into that a movie. Book. That's been a movie. Yeah, it was made into a movie last year. I haven't seen it. But we should I haven't seen it either. It. We should watch it this week. Yeah. Many responded to the harsh tone of If Beale Street Could Talk with accusations of bitterness. Oh god, why would a black man in America be bitter? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> But even though he encapsulated much of the anger of the times in his book, he always remained a constant advocate for universal love and brotherhood. Hmm. It's a hard line to walk. It is. It's really easy to just let bitterness completely flow into you. I mean, yeah, it's very, very easy to just be angry at everyone and not let the possibility of change or hope or or friendship or anything in. But God, what a bleak existence. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know, Positivity's I feel that hard. sometimes. Like, I try to be very positive, but, like, it's so easy to just feel so angry and scared and not think that anything's going to change ever. Yeah, no, I mean, I have days where I can't, I literally cannot get out of bed because the weight of my own mind is pressing on me so hard. But that's why I work so hard at finding the joyful and the good and the the kindness of strangers. Like, I, I sound like a fucking hippie weirdo, but like... This is Seattle. This is Seattle. Not your hippie weirdo flag fly. The thing is that no one's going to give me happiness. No one's going to give me joy. No one's going to give me contentment. I have to find it for myself and figure out what makes me content. And I have to do that while also knowing that like some people in the world will never have that privilege. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing that I can do to help them. And that kills me sometimes, too. And sometimes that contributes to me staying in bed all day. Um, try living in the world as a highly empathetic person. I don't recommend it. Unrelatable. <laughs> I collect empathetic people. I said, I know this is relatable to you. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't really know 
where I was going with that. But finding that balance is so hard. And I spent a good chunk of my early 20s just deep, deep in my anger and my depression and my sadness and not seeing any way out at all. It was hard work to get to this side of it. Still hard work. You're choosing radical joy. Yeah, I am. It was an actual, tangible choice that I made to look for the good stuff. It's retraining your brain is hard. Mm -hmm. This this devolved into the mental illness crappy hour. <laughs> Coming soon to a donors-only episode. <laughs> anyway, when he lived in the south of France in the village of Saint-Paul-de-Vence, his house was always open to his friends, and they frequently visited him while on trips to the French Riviera. Hey, that sounds like me and my house. Yeah. And your house, house. Now too. Yeah. To be fair, my house was always open to my friends when I lived 30 minutes from here. It's just that nobody crosses the lake. Yeah. That's fair. I just, now that I live over here, I don't cross the lake. No. Except I go to work. Except I go to work. I just like that, you know, there are certain days, days of the week where I know people are coming over, so I just unlock the front door mm -hmm. um, and I do my shit and, you know, not. sometimes I come out of the bathroom and there's friends here and I'm like, oh, hey, friends. Uh, it's great. You're a knock. You all come in. No one comes in, and you're like, oh, shoot, I, I also ordered food. <laughs> and then you open the door, and they look sheepish. It's great. And they say, uh, I heard you, but um, I don't like to go inside people's homes. <laughs> and we say, no, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> Here are some of the people who would frequently drop in on him. Beaufort Delaney, his mentor from earlier. Last week, remember? Beaufort Delaney is a good name. Yes, he's a painter. Um, and he actually made Saint-Paul-de-Vence uh, his second home often setting up his easel in uh, Baldwin's garden, and he painted several colorful portraits of Baldwin during that time, Aww. which we will probably post. Nall also befriended Baldwin during this time. Nall is, of course, as we both know, the internationally known American artist who uses the simple name Nall and maintains a studio and gallery in Alabama. Fred Nall Hollis. Fred Nall Hollis. He goes by Nall. And he was there a bunch. He'll come back later. Neat. He was also frequently visited by his actor friends, Harry Belafonte and Sidney Poitier. I've heard of them. Yes. Many of his musician friends dropped by during the jazz festivals in Nice and Mont Le Pin. Those friends included people like Nina Simone and Josephine Baker. Hey, I've definitely heard of mm -hmm. Josephine Baker. See earlier Vintage Lesbians episode. Yes. Miles Davis, Ray Charles. Uh, Ray Charles actually wrote several songs for Baldwin. In his autobiography, Miles Davis wrote about Baldwin, saying, I'd read his books, and I liked and respected what he had to say. When I got to know him better, Jimmy and I opened up to each other. We became great friends. Every time I was in the south of France, in Antibes, I would spend a day or two in this villa in Saint-Paul-de-Vence. We would get comfy in that beautiful big house, and he would tell us all sorts of stories. He was a great man. That's nice. While he was there, he continued to write. He spent a lot of his time answering the huge amount of mail that he received from all over the world. He wrote several of his last works in his house, including Just Above My Head, which was published in 79, and Evidence of Things Not Seen in 85. And he also wrote poetry, plays, fiction, and essays. Several of his essays and interviews, especially in the 80s, discussed homosexuality and homophobia with fervor and forthrightness. He was always true to his own convictions rather than to the tastes of others, and he always continued to write what he wanted to write. As he had been the leading literary voice of the civil rights movement, he also became an inspirational figure for the emerging gay rights movement. Towards the end of his career, he was inducted as the commander in the National Order of the Legion of Honor, France's highest honor of merit. Um, Josephine Baker also received yeah, that. And in that year, he also made a tri trip to Russia with a group of prominent writers to meet with Gorbachev and discuss world peace. In 19... Do you think he contributed to tearing down that wall? Oh, I'm sure he did. In 1987, in a television interview at the height of the AIDS epidemic, 
Baldwin was asked about the decriminalization of homosexuality and the prejudice against gay people. There's a, a prejudice that at one time was ag against homosexuals. At one time? Yeah, hold on. Mm -hmm. When it was a criminal offense, even. Mm -hmm. Then that's got removed. The law. And people started to appear mm -hmm. to accept. Mm -hmm. Back, it comes again now because of AIDS. It never went anywhere. It never went anywhere. People's attitudes don't change because the law changes. I, I know that. And the homosexual questions like this is like, it's like what we call the racial question. Nobody, no man and no woman, is precisely what they think they are. Love mm -hmm. is where you find it. And you don't know where you don't know where it will carry you. And it is a terrifying thing, love. It is the only human possibility, but it's terrifying. And a man can fall in love with a man, a woman can fall in love with a woman. There's nothing nothing anybody can do about it. It's not in the province of the law. Mm. There's nothing to do with the church. Mm. And if you lie about that, if you lie about that, you lie about everything. Mm. And no one has a right to try to tell another human being whom he or she can or should love. First time my dad and I talked about uh, gay marriage, I think I was 13. I think this was like two years after I found out that my um, uncle had died of, of AIDS. Uh, and I knew my uncle died of AIDS. I didn't know that my uncle was gay um, until I was 11. And when I was 13, we were talking about gay marriage. And my dad asked me, what, what do you think? Do you think gay people should be allowed to get married? And I said rather emphatically, I think if two people love each other and they're adults and they can make their decisions that they should be able to get married because it's their decision, not the government's. Hell and then yeah. my dad explained to me what taxes were and I cried. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know that marriage was a government, like a legal binding yeah. thing because to my 13 year old self, marriage was a church thing. Mm -hmm. um, it's an expression of love. Yeah. Like, like, a, like a commitment ceremony mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. When I first learned about gay marriage, I was told... It's bad. Hmm. Great. End of discussion. Cool. Yeah. Um, my dad and I we have our issues, but that's one of the ways that he did right by me and my brother, I think, was just being like, yeah, some people are gay. There's literally nothing wrong with it. That's amazing. And he's also the parent who, when I came out to them as, as trans, said, like, I don't understand it, but it's my job to figure that out mm -hmm. and, like, keep being your dad. So that's really sweet. Good on you. James Baldwin died of stomach cancer on December 1st, 1987. And Nall actually took care of him on his deathbed. Remember Nall from a second yeah. ago? Were they um, romantically entangled or were they just good friends? I couldn't find anything out about that. I feel like painting that many portraits of someone. That was that Beaufort intimate. Delaney. Oh, sorry. I don't remember words. He's good. just surrounded by artists on all sides. It's fine. Nall said to Baldwin, through your books, you liberated me from my guilt about being so bigoted coming from Alabama and because of my homosexuality. And Baldwin insisted, no, you liberated me in revealing this to me. He left a huge legacy. Yeah, he sure did. I'm going to read some of his eulogy. Okay. It said, this man traveled the earth like its history and its biographer. He reported, criticized, made beautiful, analyzed, cajoled, lyricized, attacked, sang, made us think, made us better, made us consciously human. He made us feel that we could defend ourselves or define ourselves, that we were in the world not merely as animate slaves, but as terrifyingly sensitive measurers of what is good or evil, beautiful or ugly. This is the power of his spirit. This is the bond which created our love for him. Ooh, ooh. I read that and it gave me chills. Like, yeah. I'm not, look at, look at my arm. 
author Daryl Pickney um, cites him as an influence. He said, there's something wild in the beauty of Baldwin's sentences and the cool t- of his tone. Something improbable to this meeting of Henry James, the Bible, and Harlem. Hmm. Maya Angelou called Baldwin her friend and brother and credited him for setting the stage for her autobiography, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Mm-hmm. In 2016, the film I Am Not Your Negro came out. Have you heard of this? No. Oh, it's a documentary about Baldwin. It's based on his last unfinished manuscript called Remember This House, and it's a 93-minute journey into Black history that connects the past of the civil rights movement to the present of Black Lives Matter, and we mm-hmm. should watch it. Yeah, um, it is a film that questions Black representation in Hollywood and beyond. In public and in his writings, Baldwin displayed a hope for a better tomorrow that even today is uplifting. He wrote to promote equality at all costs. He inspires us to be persistent in fighting for recognition of our humanity exactly as we are, whether it be gay, bi, trans, or queer. In his book, The Last Interview and Other Conversations, Baldwin said, I was not born to be what someone else said I was. I was not born to be defined by someone else, but by myself and myself only. You know what that makes me think of? What? Uh... The, the song lyrics, um, and I wasn't born for anyone, wasn't born to say anything. I'm just here now and soon I'll be gone. From First Aid Kit. Yeah. It's a good song. I really like this. I'm not going to delve into too much about what I've been learning in therapy lately, but I'm starting to sort of define myself for the first time in my life. And it's very good and very scary, but I don't know. I'm really inspired by James Baldwin. I'm really proud of you. Oh, thanks. You hey. deserve to be on the forefront of things. I'm touching my face in... And love. Um, I'm just sitting here, big pride of my friend Allison. I've <laughs> seen the progress that Allison has made in, in not allowing herself to be shoved to the background, and I'm I'm just really happy and proud of her. Oh, thanks, Shan. Love you. I love you. Don't cry. Goodbye. <laughs> I'm, just I'm not gonna cry. I haven't cried on this podcast yet. So what's up, Shan? Three, Allison one, zero. But like, it's like tennis, and the low score is the winner. Three to love. That's three, me. Three, three to lo- three to love. Yeah. Who's you're- serving? Am I? That means you're serving. I don't know. I don't know that much no, about that tennis. I serving. just know zero is love. Anyway, it would be three love because they don't say two. Well, that's an extraneous word. I wanted to thank Leslie Martin for designing our beautiful, our beautiful, beautiful, beautiful logo. logo. What does Leslie have to plug this week? Uh, this week, Leslie's plug is believe in yourself. You've got this. Ah, oh, thanks, Leslie. Leslie's great. I love her so much. Of course, you can follow us personally on social media. I'm just underscore a underscore Shan underscore on the twits and the instas. And I'm Allison Humphreys. Figure it out. Yeah, you um, got this. And you can follow Vintage Lesbians at Vintage Les Pod on all of the things or at gmail.com or also at patreon.com slash vintage lesbians to find all those cool secret things that we talked yes. about and hinted at in this episode. We'll continue to hint about forever i would recommend following our patreon because we got some good stuff we do we've got some I'm good really stuff excited planned um we're excited about it we'd like you to be excited about it's, it i'm also very excited about our free podcast yeah we no, got I'm some excited good about, like vintage, the there. people if you can't be a patron that's also fine mm-hmm. we just like this project we want to make it bigger is that everything i Are think we that's everything do we have other things up. to say i don't think so mm. we'll be we'll, we'll see you next week we don't even hear you I will see you. I'm always there. Allison's a wizard. I love you. I love you. Bye. Bye.